Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews as we continue in on our study. Um, we'll be reading beginning in chapter 8. Hear now God's word. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if we hear, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, but as it is, yeah, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanquish away. And that lessons a reading of God's word. Please bow with me. You would in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word this morning. And I do pray that you would speak to us today. God, I know the last thing that Satan desires is that we would hear your word. And, and, uh, but I pray, God, that you would give us the grace to not only hear it, but to receive it, to believe it, to walk according to it. Uh, that we might know you, Lord, that we might delight in you. We thank you, Father, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, more than, than anything, the world in which we live needs hope. And, and we have that hope as Christians, as believers in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've already looked at the first six verses of, of Hebrews chapter 8, but we just wanted to read the whole thing for, for the context. But in that, we are reminded that Jesus Christ is our high priest. I think it's so easy as Christians to uh, forget that Christ's ministry is is even much more than the cross. I mean, the cross is, of course, central and, and important, but Christ still ministers today 
on behalf of his church and on behalf of his people. And the things that we see in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament are just copies and shadows of the, of the real deal of what Christ does today. He is the high priest that mediates in, in the Holy of Holies in heaven above. And I hope as a Christian that encourages you in, in your walk with the Lord. Especially if you're here this morning and you're struggling and you're wrestling to understand that you are not alone. That Christ is there and He is ministering on your behalf. And so I hope that encourages you. But the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that we are we not only have a great high priest, but we also have a greater covenant. If you look at verse 6, he says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, what is the covenant that he's talking about? We know, kids, if I ask you, what is a covenant? You can tell me, right? A covenant is an agreement between two or more people. Okay? You may have a more elaborate definition than that. But, you know, at the simplest level, that's what a covenant is. And, and as we look down at verse 9, we see that it is the Mosaic covenant. It's the covenant that God made with Moses. Um, in verse 9 we read, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The Mosaic covenant was something the Jews would have been proud of, much like they were proud of of the priesthood. They took pride in the Old Testament law and their lives revolved around strict attention to the law. And so the things that we read this morning in the Old Testament would have been things that they took to heart and they sought to live by in their lives. And so just think how shocked they must have been as, as they hear the author say in verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What? The first covenant is faulted? So what is wrong with the covenant that God had made with Moses? Well, the problem is not so much with the covenant itself because God had made it. And, um, and so it wasn't so much the covenant. The problem was that the people were unable to fulfill it. Look at verse 8 where he explains more clearly. He says, For he finds, that is God, he finds fault with them, that is, with God's people. Now, I, I do want to be transparent with you and, and, uh, and understand that if you look in the Greek, it actually could be read a different way as well. It could, be, it could say, He finds fault, saying to them, Behold, the days are coming. In other words, the fault's not with them, it's just that there is fault. But the problem with that interpretation is, while it is possible, it's not probable, especially when you look at the context of this passage. Um, if you look beginning in verse 8, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. You see, it's, it's that idea again that the finger is pointed not at the covenant, but at them, at God's people, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so God established the old covenant, and the Israelites agreed with the conditions laid out by them. We see that ratified in Exodus 24. And yet the Israelites consistently 
failed to uphold their end of the agreement. They may have had good intentions to keep the law. They may have desired to, to do so, but they had no power to do so. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of the persistent failure of the Jews. If you turn over with me to Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah 7, verse 22. Um, if you kids growing up in Sunday school, adults, you having grown up in Sunday school and heard the story of the Israelites, and probably it's not something where I have to make a big point that the Israelites failed God over and over. They sort of had a problem with obedience, didn't they? Uh, in obeying the Lord. But Jeremiah does a, a great job of, of summarizing the struggle that they had. Jeremiah 7, 22 through 26. It says, For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifice. But this command I gave them. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or inclined their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. You see, when God sent the prophets to the people, the role that those prophets played was to be covenant prosecutors. You know, you have a prosecuting attorney that brings up the charges against somebody in a court of law. That's what the prophets of the Old Testament did before God's people. They would bring before them the, the covenant uh, unfaithfulness that they have and call the people to repentance. But as we read here, oftentimes they responded with stiff necks. What's that mean, kids, to have a stiff neck? It doesn't mean like, oh, my neck hurts. Like, it means to be proud. If somebody has a stiff neck, they're standing up straight, they're proud and they're arrogant. They're not humble. They're not repentant. And so the blame for the broken covenant lays squarely on the unfaithful people of God. The, the old covenant's major problem was not that it lacked grace, but that it was an external administration of salvation. And in other words, it, it did not give the people the inward power that it needed to fulfill its demands. Um, as we read in verse 8, so God found fault with his people. Uh, if, uh, if God, in delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, was his redemption, then allowing his people to be cast into as exiles in Assyria and Babylon was an act of God turning away from his people. But you know what? That's not where the Bible leaves us. There is one who has come who has been completely obedient to the law. One who is perfectly righteous, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so now we have a new covenant that is better and able to succeed where the other one failed. The new covenant works internally instead of just an external uh, action of salvation. It transforms those who come to God through it. 
So what is it that makes the new covenant better than the old covenant? Well, Jeremiah describes this new covenant, and I want us to look at it this morning. The first thing I want us to see in verse 10 is that in the new covenant, the Lord internalizes his law. He, he does so in the hearts of, of, of those in the new covenant. Verse 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, in the Old Testament, where the law of God was, was written, where the commandments of God were written on tablets of stone, he's saying now it's written into the hearts of believers. Uh, the writing of God's law in their hearts is, is much more, let me just say, than committing God's word to memory. It's, that's not just what he's talking about. The Bible does talk about the importance of that. In Deuteronomy, we see where Moses instructs the people. Uh, he says in Deuteronomy 6, 6, And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall... Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There is a sense in which we are to value God's word. And, and even David talks about how we should hide God's word in our hearts that we might not sin against him. But even the memorizing of the law of God doesn't necessarily mean that we will actually obey the law of God that he gives us. And, and so Jeremiah's words Im imply the receiving of a new heart, of a new way to, to receive God's law. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, we read, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I, I will remove that heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. You see, what good news that is, that, you know, in the Old Testament, the people, they had hearts of stones, that they could hear God's word, and they could know what it says, they could seek to obey it, maybe externally, but there wasn't that internal uh, motivation and ability to obey that, um, so what good news considering that God's people in the Old Covenant would uh, commit to God's covenant and yet be obedient and turn aside to their own ways. But in the New Covenant, God makes provision for, for this human weakness, promising not only to give us the law, but actually to place His law within our hearts as well. And we see that uh, in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're not going to go through that chapter. You can go back and read that this afternoon. But... but 2 Corinthians 3 is sort of a parallel to this passage in Roman or in Hebrews 8, where Paul contrasts the external work of the Old Covenant and the internal work of the New Covenant, using really the same metaphor of the tablet of stone and the tablet of the heart on which God writes. But it's interesting that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the chapter concludes with an explanation of how this takes place in those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, how this writing on the heart takes place. 2 Corinthians 3.18 uh, says that they are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
It's as the Spirit of God works in our hearts as we come to faith in Him, and He gives us that, that new life, that new way of seeing things. Every person who is a true Christian has personal experience with, with what Jeremiah is talking about here. For those often, especially, they come to faith in Christ later on in life, it's like, wow, I see things totally different. It's like somebody has given me new lenses, or, or maybe it's like the cataracts have been removed, and now I can see again. When you become a believer, you start wanting to do things that you never wanted to do before. You never wanted to go to church and sit in a room with other believers and worship the Lord. You, you didn't want to go tell other people about Jesus Christ. You didn't want to love other people rather than doing what would be to your own benefit. And at the same time, things that once brought you pleasure now seem very disturbing. Things that... Uh, sin and other things. And, um, and Jeremiah says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Now, there's sort of a progression here. That faith first takes place in our minds. It's, it's in our thinking faculty. First, we have to, to understand the gospel. We have to understand the truth. We have to understand God's commands. Then, this faith works its way into our heart, which includes both our will and our affections. So it's not enough that we know God's Word and we can espouse all these things. And, and some people do that, and then they use God's Word as a club to beat other people over the head. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a faith where that knowledge goes beyond just the mind into the heart and the will and the affections. So we must not only know and understand the truth, but, but embrace that truth. Could commit to that and to love it in all of our hearts. And this is how saving faith works. Both the head and the heart are necessary. And if you are a believer, then you should take encouragement in this. That God is working in you. That he has put his word into your heart. He's applying his word in you. He is changing your affections and your will. I know sometimes it doesn't feel that way, does it? Sometimes you think, goodness, I think I sin more than I obey the Lord. But as you look at your life over a period of years, maybe over a period of decades if you've lived that long, then, then you begin to see that God has been at work in your life. And He's given you greater joy and greater affections for the Lord. So we see, first of all, he's put that, his law in our hearts. But second of all, in the new covenant, there is a, a knowledge of God. In verse 11, he says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, the knowledge of God as a matter of personal experience is, is, is part of the new covenant. At least a knowledge as something beyond what the Old Covenant uh, provided. There's, there's a sense in which the people of Israel knew their God because God had revealed Himself to them through the prophets. And so they, they knew who God was. But unlike the nations which did not receive God's revelation, Israel had this knowledge. But even though Israel had this revelation, she tended to forget 
who God is. Old Testament knowledge of God means more than just believing in God. It means more than just saying, I believe that God exists. It is a sense of acknowledging His holiness and, and obeying Him. It is setting your affections upon the Lord and knowing Him. And, and I say that because if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 Samuel 2 verse 12, it speaks of Eli's sons. Now remember, Eli was the high priest during the time of, of Samuel. And his sons were priests. And it says of them that his sons were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. You're going, what? They're priests. Kids, this is an exact uh, equation, but it would be like somebody saying, the guy's a preacher. He's an elder in the church. He's somebody who is sort of a big deal. And you're telling me that they did not know the Lord? They knew the Lord. They knew that Yahweh existed. They offered the sacrifices on behalf of the people to the Lord. They understood intellectually all the things there were to know about God. But what this is talking about, this is a reflection on their character and their conduct, not in what they say they believe. They did not understand that the Lord, who He was. We read in the Old Covenant... How from time to time Israel fell into that. In um, Judges chapter 2 verse 10. When Israel had entered the promised land. And Joshua and the generation in which he lived had died. We read. And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them. Who did not know the Lord. Or the work that he had done for Israel. Later on Hosea. Hosea. Uh, uh, wept over the fact that there was no knowledge of God in the land of Israel. We read in Hosea chapter 4 verses 1 and 6. There were sacrifices being offered to the Lord. There were external expressions that would make someone think that if they looked at the nation they'd say, yes, they know God. They know what He wants and yet there was no knowledge of God. There was no sense of His holiness, of who He was. A sense of o obedience. Uh, there was no... Uh, covenant loyalty of knowing God and, and walking with Him. But that wasn't always the case. There were those uh, who did follow the Lord. David, uh, King Josiah, and, and others. But now in the New Covenant, the knowledge of God is not merely uh, an intellectual ascent, even though the intellectual component must not be minimalized. Remember, saving faith comes to the mind first. But the knowledge is one of saving interest, of, of true communion with God. It's an experiential reality that we will be found in the lives of all of God's true children. Uh, I appreciate what some commentators say when they talk about how now, rather than God's word coming through the prophets, it's not that others will tell you about God, it's that you will know Him. Why? Because God's law is written on the hearts of His people. And so they will know God. A true knowledge of God is given by the Holy Spirit. And so a person will not merely have a rational notion that God is glorious, but they'll have a true sense of the gloriousness of God within their hearts. And kids, I think that's probably sometimes the greatest struggle. As someone who's grown up in the church, I can attest to this. Sometimes you can know a lot of things about God, 
but you don't really sort out the difference between what you experience in re relation to God and what you just merely know about God. It's one thing to know that God is holy. It's another to have a sense of the loveliness of God's holiness in your heart. I just wonder how many people today who call themselves Christians really have no sense of who God is. You know, it, it would be like um, somebody who says, I know that honey is sweet. You know, just put it on your tongue and you can just taste the sweetness go all the way down. And you say, really? You like honey? Well, I, actually, I've never had honey. I just know that of the sweetness of honey. I've read a lot about honey. You know, I've, I've looked at honey. I've studied honey. But they know nothing of that. And, and it can be that way with some when it comes to God. But in the New Covenant, God gives His people a true sense of who He is and what it means to walk in fellowship with Him. And then third, and finally, we see in the New Covenant, there is forgiveness of sins. Now, I want you to, to catch something here. Um, I think it's really easy to just sort of read through the passage and, and not catch uh, the nuances of what we're reading in verse 12. It says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, let me put that in the context of the entirety. Look back at verse 10, where he, said, where he talks about uh, these blessings of the new covenant. And he says, I will put my laws in their minds and I'll write them on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of these four. Not and I will be merciful towards their iniquities. But the reason that they will have his laws put in their minds and the reason they will not have to teach others but they will know the Lord is because God will be merciful towards their iniquities. We cannot know God's law. We cannot have that knowledge of God until there is first the forgiveness of sins. And he said, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. You see, the forgiveness of sins is essential for one to have a relationship with God. May we never forget that. May our hearts always be full of praise and thanksgiving as we understand and are being reminded of our sin each day. And, uh, and know that, um, that even this is not a new or a novel idea to the new covenant. That even in the Old Testament, we see that there was, uh, that God is a God who forgives. Uh, let me just read a couple passages. Micah chapter 7. Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, hardening iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he, the Lord, delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will treat our iniquities, our sins, underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And, and even uh, the Lord himself describes himself as one who forgives sins. In Exodus chapter 34 verse 6, the Lord is passing before Moses and this is what he proclaims before as he's showing himself to Moses. He said, The Lord 
the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, Jeremiah says that in the new covenant, that the Lord will not, rem he will remember their sins no more. Now, when he says remember, he doesn't just mean a mental exercise. That's what we think of. You say, hey, do you remember what you had for lunch or breakfast yesterday? Can you tell me? You know, and you're, so you're doing this mental exercise to try to remember. But that's not what it means when the Lord says remember. It really is the idea of uh, carrying, uh, it's carried with it the thought of doing something to the advantage or the disadvantage of the person that's being remembered. Uh, a case in point, Cornelius, remember in the New Testament, he's, he's a faithful man of God. He's a Gentile, but he's a, he's a faithful follower of God. And he prays to the Lord, and he gives alms, and these things ascend to the Lord as a memorial before the Lord. And God took action. He remembered Cornelius' prayers and his alms, and he took action to Cornelius' advantage and sent his servant Peter to come and to do what? To bring the message of salvation. That, that was the beginning of the Gentiles hearing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if God remembers one's sin, it means that his holiness takes action against that sin. God pours out his wrath upon that sin because he remembers it. But likewise, if their sins are not remembered, it is because his grace has determined to forgive their sins in harmony with his holiness. He doesn't pour out his wrath. And so in the Old Covenant, there was this annual reminder of sins, the Day of Atonement. There were sacrifices that were given daily for sins, but no removal of sins through the sacrificial system. The sins were not taken away. In the New Covenant, God will no longer merely pass over sin, but He will effectually and fully deal with that sin in the sacrifice of our Savior and High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the New Covenant. That sins are actually dealt with. That sins are actually forgiven. So even if Satan comes to you and condemns you and accuses you for sin, and you have to say, you know, I'm, you're right. I did do that. I did think that. I did desire that. Am I guilty? Yes, in and of myself, I am. But that sin has been taken care of. That sin has been forgiven. And my slate is clean because of what my Savior did, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's for all these reasons that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Therefore, we should do away with the old covenant. It's inferior. It's obsolete. In other words, our hope and our assurance of salvation is no longer based on the external work of earthly priests, but in what Christ, our high priest, has done for us. And so the sacrificial system is done away with. It's, it's obsolete, as it says in verse 13. By, and it's done away with by the one who bore our sins and carried our sorrows. 
And now a new way is open through Jesus Christ. Perfect, unrepeatable sacrifice. And we receive this as a gift, not as a payment for what we deserve. And so we are enabled to believe the word of the promise of the better covenant. If you are here this morning, or even if you're watching via the internet, you may have always thought that to do your own thing is true freedom. You know, if I don't shackle myself down to God and His commands and the things that He wants, then that I'll have true freedom. But most likely what you're finding is, is that really there's just a sense of hopelessness. Because God has made you to have fellowship with Him. And the only way that that can be done, the only way you can have His Word written in your heart to have that relationship with Him is if your sins are first dealt with. If you would humble yourself, not be the stiff-necked Israelites that were proud and arrogant, and I can do it myself, but you're the humble person who acknowledges your sin, and you, you confess that to the Lord and ask His forgiveness, He will forgive you. He, he has paid that price through the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will not only forgive you, but as I said before, because of that, through that forgiveness of sin, comes that relationship with Him, to know Him. But it may be that you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you're a believer and you've been struggling and you've been wrestling and, and you, you've never really thought of it this way, but really what you're doing is you're a lot like the Hebrews. You know, where they're thinking, I need to go back to the old covenant. I need to go back to the sacrificial system. You know, the author here is saying, it's gone. That's not the way that you have access to God. It's now through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have, you have been wrestling in your faith. And you have been trying so hard to, to, to follow the Lord's commands. And it just seems like sin is overtaking you. And you are so weary in your struggle. And you're trying harder to be obedient. You're trying harder to obey the law. But the law is doing exactly what it was intended to do. It's to show you you can't do it. There's no way that you can obey God apart from the work of His Holy Spirit in you. And so this morning, instead of trying harder, brother or sister, I encourage you to rest in Him. To rest in these new covenant promises. To know that He will do this work in you. To cry out to Him, to confess your sins, and to say, Lord, forgive me so much for trying to do this myself. But I pray that you will forgive me of my sin. And I'm going to instead look to you to work in my heart, to cause me to grow, to be like you. And it's in, in these new covenant promises that we can rejoice and give thanks to God. Let's just take a moment this morning and bow our heads as we consider these things that's been preached today.
Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful blessings that you have given us in Jesus Christ, more than we could ever imagine. That you have taken us to the place where you've really taken us back to the garden to, to once again have fellowship with you. Not quite like Adam and Eve did, uh, but Lord, we look forward to the day when we will be like that as we are glorified and will be with you in heaven. But we thank you for the assurance as your people of the promises that you give to us, that you have done these things in our lives and they are reality. And we pray that we might walk in these promises. Struggling when we are so bullheaded to think that I can do it myself, that, that, that these promises would convict us of our sin. And help us to see that we have true freedom, but that's only in you. And help us to walk that way. God, as, as, as humble people, as people that are thankful and joyful and rejoicing in, in the great work of our almighty God. We thank you. And I pray, Lord, that if there be those that do not know you this morning who have been fighting you, maybe they've been wrestling, God, with you for a long time and they just don't want to bow their knee. I pray that today might be the day, Lord, that they would be set free. The day where they would be humbled to confess their sins to you and ask for forgiveness and trust in your salvation alone. We thank you, O oh God, for your great faithfulness, even in the midst of our covenant unfaithfulness. We pray this in your name. Amen.